I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17 uh, this morning. Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin a new study in 1 Thessalonians, but Acts is a historical context for what took place in this uh, particular city, and that's why we're going to begin there. And let me pray for us as we look at God's Word. Father, thank you for the power of the Word that your word is truth. It sanctifies us. It cleanses our heart. It convicts us. It encourages us. We are instructed by it. It is all things that we need. And so, Father, I pray that today as we come and we open your word and listen to it again, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to each of us. Thank you that we have this wonderful gift. Amen. Well, today, as I mentioned, we're going to start this series in Thessalonians. And when I was thinking about this particular letter, there were two themes in particular that I was drawn to, two themes that I think stand out and make this an especially attractive book to study. One is the emphasis on the second coming of Jesus Christ. We are living in a time when we look at what's going on in our world, and all of us are wondering, you know, how long can this keep going? <laughs> You know, we see the things that are out there and it feels really discouraging at times when we see the evil of the sin in our world. And we wonder, Jesus, is this the time in which you are going to return? Well, what we see in the book of Thessalonians in this letter is that this was a group of people that believed that Jesus could return at any time. And they were ready for that. You're going to see that every chapter in this letter ends with a reference to Christ's return. And we're going to see how they were inspired by that hope. That hope made a difference in the way that they lived. And that phrase, inspired by hope, is going to be the theme for our study as we go through this letter. You can go to the notes that are up there. Thank you. And then uh, we also see a second emphasis here is on discipleship. One of the commentators mentioned that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians sometimes get passed over because they don't have the controversy of a book like Galatians, and they also um, don't have maybe the same theological depth that a book like Romans does or Hebrews that we spent time in. But no other letters so clearly show Paul's method of discipleship and church planting. I mean, it is a remarkable book when you hear Paul talking about these people whom he loved and how he cared for them as a father cares for his children, how he nourished them or instructed them and loved them like a mother cares for her children. I mean, you hear his compassion, his love for these people and how that affected his ministry. So the place that we're going to begin is here in Acts chapter 17, and I'd like to read verses 1 to 9 for us. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, 
and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So we see that Paul and Silas visited Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey. It would be around the years 49 to 50 AD, roughly 17 years after Jesus was crucified and rose again. And these men traveled from Philippi, where you may recall they had been arrested, beaten, thrown into, into a prison cell, and then later released as God did a miracle there and brought to Christ even the Philippian jailer and his whole family. The distance between Philippi and Thessalonica was about 100 miles. Normally it would take, say, five days walking that distance. It must have been a painful journey for them knowing the bruises and the wounds that they had received. They would travel along what was called the Ignatian Highway, it was a road that went from east to west, from Istanbul across northern Greece and over to Italy, and they would walk along that road. And when they came to Thessalonica, Paul went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he began to teach there. And he tells us that for three Sabbath days, he reasoned from the scriptures, showing them that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And what we see is that there were a number of Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and prominent women that are mentioned here who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And this was the beginning of a new church. I mean, here, here it was starting. Here we are witnessing the birth of this church that began in this city. Thessalonica was a major city. About 200,000 people lived there. It was the capital of Macedonia and northern Greece. It was a seaport. It was on this major east-west highway. But it was also from Thessalonica that the highway or road went north to the Danube River and into the interior of Europe. It was a significant place to begin a church. And God had led him there. But what happened? Satan was also at work. He didn't want to see this going on, and we see the opposition that arose immediately. Some were jealous at the success Paul was having in his ministry. Some wanted to silence these messengers of God, and so they went into the marketplace and found some bad characters. We would maybe even use the word some thugs that they found there to start a riot and to look for these men to hurt them. And there in that place, this mob came to Jason's house. That's probably where Paul and Silas had been staying. It might have even been where this church was meeting since they could no longer meet in the synagogue. And they dragged Jason out. 
And they got some of the other brothers and they brought them before the city officials that were there wanting this to be silenced. What was the charge? Well, these men are causing trouble all over the world. But what kind of trouble? I mean, these men haven't caused any violence. What harm have they done to anyone? They haven't caused any harm. Nothing but a message that there is another king, a king, Jesus, who is Lord of all. And that was enough for these angry men to be upset about what they were sharing. They didn't want to hear about another king. Paul and Silas would need to leave. They would go on to Berea where they would find another great reception, another church would be born, uh, started in that place, and then the word came back to Thessalonica of what was happening. Those angry people came down again, stirred up the crowd, and Paul was forced to leave again. He would go to Athens. In Athens, he would find very little reception, very little fruit. And he would go on to Corinth, where he would stay for some 18 months. If you think about that, here God had called them to go to Europe, to Philippi. The first converts in Europe were there with a woman named Lydia of Thyatira and others. And he would make his journey through these cities. Paul and Silas would go to five cities. They would start four new churches, one in Philippi, one in Thessalonica, one in Berea, and now one in Corinth. But all of them were on shaky ground. I mean, these were new believers. What did they know about running a church or starting a work of God in that area? And Paul was very concerned for them. And it is from Corinth that Paul will write these letters to the Thessalonians. And he will encourage them and instruct them to stand firm in their faith in Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from Paul's example of discipleship here? What can we learn from his example of church planting even that is significant for us as a church? Well, I want to point out three things that I see here. And for this, you'll need to turn to 1 Thessalonians, if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. One of the first things that we see is that Paul had a team-based ministry. He introduces this letter by saying it is written by Paul and Silas and Timothy. Who were these men and what were they doing? Well, Paul always traveled with others on his missionary journey. And here he mentions his traveling partners in this case who are Silas and Timothy. Silas, his full name is actually Silvanus. He was... Um, a Jew by birth, and he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He was a gifted prophet. He was known for his faithfulness and his service to Christ. And what's interesting, at this point in his ministry for Paul early on, Silas would have been regarded as an equal to Paul in this particular missionary journey, even though he never wrote a New Testament book. He was that highly regarded in the church. And so here are these two men sent out really as peers on this missionary journey. And Timothy, well, he was a young disciple whom Paul had met in Lystra. 
He was faithful and he was a gifted young man and Paul saw in him these gifts of pastoral leadership and he wanted to train and mentor him and so he invited him to come with him on the rest of this missionary journey. Paul would work with others as a team whenever he traveled and he instructed others to do the same. To Titus, one of his other disciples in the faith, he would write this. He said, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might uh, straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Wherever Paul went and established churches, he wanted there to be elders, plural, that would be in leadership to oversee the work that was going on in these particular churches. Now think about that. Why is it important to have a team-based approach to ministry. What are some of the benefits of working as a team? Well, I think there's encouragement that comes from working together. I think there's wisdom that comes as collectively people talk about ideas. We look at things from different angles. Some people are uh, task-oriented, some people are people persons, and they think about different things that we want to be concerned about as a church. It gives balance. It gives health. Um, it energizes those who are working together. And it also protects the ministry. It's not just dependent upon one person to do everything. But there is a team who are working together to accomplish God's goals. And that's important because no one person has all the gifts to start a church or to lead a ministry. I was thinking of Billy Graham and all of us who know about his ministry and have admired uh, his work that went on for so many years as he preached the gospel to millions of people so faithfully. Well, Billy Graham, in his ministry, once received a Congressional Medal of Honor. And there he was, and he was before Congress, and he was given this honor for his work in our country. And the first thing he is reported to have said upon receiving this award is that this has been a team effort from the very beginning. And he proceeded to name the people who had ministered with him through the years so faithfully. Now here you have this man, remarkably gifted, unquestioned in that, with a gift of evangelism. And yet what is he saying? He's saying, I could not have done this alone. This has been a team ministry from the very beginning. I think about how our church started and the group of people that were meeting at the cost, Evangelical Freight Church, that contacted me and asked if I'd be willing to come down and meet with them. And, you know, as I got to know this group, there were about a dozen families that I met uh, who were interested in starting this new church here. Um, I was so grateful for that. So thankful for that team and then how very quickly as we began this church, there were others from the community and some from other churches who came and joined us. Because I don't have the gifts to do all of this, but I love working with teams toward a goal. To use and see people develop their gifts and to use them and get them to serve in the areas where they are gifted to be a part of this and to encourage and give leadership to that. Well, that's a gift that God's given me, but I couldn't do it on my own. 
And a result of that team-based ministry that began this church, the church grew. God blessed and it prospered. And we continue to have a very strong team-based ministry even to this day. And you may be part of our children's ministry team or student ministry team or adult ministry team or worship team or other areas, and we need that. It is good for the health of the church. Secondly, what we see here is that there was a God-centered ministry. He writes to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So here is this letter written to the church, to this group of believers that are starting to meet there in Thessalonica. And he reminds them that they are in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's church. It's not mine. It's not yours. We may talk about the church like that's the church I attend or that's the church I'm a part of, and we feel that. We feel the sense of family that we have, but ultimately this is God's church. And apart from his grace and apart from the finished work of Christ, there would be no church. And so when we think about that, I mean, that's why it's very natural that it is his mission that we follow. Jesus is the one who has given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now think about that. All authority in heaven and on earth. There's no one greater than Jesus. There's no one who has more authority than him. He is sovereign over all. And what does he say? Well, to the disciples, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he gives that great commission. And he says to them, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the triune God. And I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So all of these stories that we read in the Gospels, all of these instructions that were given to the disciples are now passed on to us from this one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why we, based on that command, state that for our church, our mission is to glorify God by making healthy, multiplying disciples who will work together to reach the world for Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why God has placed us in this area in which we live. We are here to make disciples. So why is it important for a church to have a God-centered ministry? What are some of the benefits that come from that? Well, first of all, it unites us. It's what draws us together. It helps us to keep our focus on the Lord and not on us, that this is about him. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not all about us. It gives clarity to our mission. It gives us a way in which we can evaluate what we are doing. Are we accomplishing what God has asked us to do? It's why we celebrate every time there's a new birth and we rejoice when people come into a relationship with Christ. It's why we work hard to encourage you to take those next steps, to get involved in a small group where you can be discipled or to join an adult Bible fellowship where you can grow in your faith. 
It's why we encourage you to use your gifts in ministry to find that place where you can serve and join in this mission because as we give and as we serve and we work together to reach the world for Jesus Christ, God uses us. And it's why we rejoice at the laborers that God has raised up from our church who are going into the harvest literally all over the world, not just in our community, but those whom God has called to serve in other parts of the world. You know, keeping that focus can be a challenge because we live in a world that is very self-centered. We live in a world that wants to say, you know, it's all about me, it's all about my needs or what, what we want. And sometimes that can seep into the church too where people bring kind of a consumer mindset of what's in it for me. And it's good to be reminded again that the church exists for God's glory. We want to be here. We want to help one another to grow in the faith. And we do want you and your family to be blessed by attending this church and joining in its ministry. But it is a strong word that the church exists for God's glory and not for ours. John Stott observed out of this letter, he said, what stands out in Paul's vision of the church is its God-centeredness. And then thirdly, what we see here is that it was a life-changing ministry. And look at verses 2 and 3. He said, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they haven't been a church for very long. They're suffering from persecution, and yet they are persevering, and they are together, and they are meeting, they're studying the Scriptures, they're being taught, they're growing in the faith, they're depending upon one another in this situation. And Paul thanked God for the change that had taken place in their lives. And he mentions these three things that stood out to him. Their work produced by faith. Their labor prompted by love. Their endurance inspired by hope. One of the things we see in these letters that Paul wrote is that faith, hope, and love become sort of a shorthand, a shorthand way of talking about a growing Christian or somebody who's maturing in the faith, that if we are becoming stronger in our faith, then there should be evidence of those three things in our life. We're growing in our faith in God. We're knowing him better. We are growing in our love for one another, our love for God and our love for people. And we have hope. We have hope that brings us through those tough times in life. You see, real faith produces action. It isn't just head knowledge, knowing some things about God. It shows in the way we live. In real love, it labors on behalf of others. It goes the extra mile. It gives grace. It forgives. It motivates, motivates us to pray. And it causes us to come alongside and in times like what I shared today, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. In real hope, it inspires endurance. 
It keeps us going when life is hard and we remember that our hope is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ and we look forward to his return. I want to share a story that Rick Warren told. Rick Warren, you know, is the pastor of Saddleback Church and he's the author of The Purpose Driven Life. And I want to tell you, I wrote this message on Thursday before I knew anything about what was going to happen on Friday. And I think God put this particular story in just for today as a word that we need. Rick Warren was asked, how did they get through the devastating loss when their 27-year-old son Matthew took his own life? after battling depression and mental illness for years. And about, after, about a year after that tragedy, Rick said, I've often been asked that question, how have you made it? How have you kept going in your pain? And I've often replied that the answer is Easter. The answer is Easter. You see, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony. Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and misery. But Easter, that Sunday, was the day of hope and joy and victory. And here's the fact of life. You will face these days over and over again in your lifetime. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, what do I do in my days of pain? And how do I get through it? And number two, how do I get through those days of doubt and confusion? And number three, how do I get to the days of joy and hope and victory? The answer is Easter. It's the joy and the resurrection of the risen Lord that changes everything. Why is it important to have a life-changing ministry? Well, that's the proof of our faith. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. That's why we are here. And Jesus said that the disciples and to us that by this is my Father glorified when you bear much fruit showing that you are my disciples so these are the qualities that god wants to build into us a faith that works a love that labors a hope that endures and these are the qualities that he wants to build into our church he wants us to have a team-based ministry where we are working together to accomplish these goals He wants us to have a God-centered ministry where our eyes are on the Lord and on our risen Savior. He wants us to have a life-changing ministry where we are seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord and become disciples and grow in their faith and join in this mission that God has called us to. If you're new today, we invite you to join with us. This is what we are all about to lift up Jesus Christ, and to make him known in the Chisago Lakes area. Let's pray. God, you are awesome. I stand in awe of how you lead even in the guiding and writing of each message week after week.
and how you know the circumstances even before they happen, and you prepare us for that. And I thank you for these words of comfort, even in the example from Rick Warren that comfort us. Lord, help us to get through our pain, help us to work through our doubt, and bring us to that point of joy and hope and victory in Jesus Christ. Amen.